0: Welcome to More Than Special with Jermaine Sufort. Our program is of interest to parents, family members, and caregivers of children and adults with special needs. Whether it's an acquired delay or one from birth, we'll speak with experts to bring you answers, information, and compassion. Now, here's your host, Jermaine Sufort.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to More Than Special. I'm here today with a guest his name is Jack Robinson and he's an attorney who works in the field of special education and um, Jack I wanted to know how did you get into this field to begin with
2: well I started about I don't know 20 some odd years ago just sort of fell into it really I uh, you know me and my two partners at a law firm that we have now we left a bigger law firm and um, you know, had the opportunity, sort of by happenstance, to to get into it and, and sort of learn about the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, the IDEA, and Section Five Hundred Four. And um, you know, interesting is before I had kids, so it wasn't uh, right. you know, sort of motivated by that so much of so much as uh, you know, it's a good. It was a good counterbalance to my other law practice, which was civil litigation mostly on the defense side and and uh, yeah it''s it's, um, it's very interesting it's very complicated it's very emotional and um, you know I've been sort of doing it ever since there's a small group of um, you know attorneys at least in Colorado Rocky Mountain region that represent parents with children with disabilities and there's sort of even a smaller group of attorneys that represent school districts with regard Hmm. to special education law matters. So it's kind of a niche. area. Yeah.
1: You know, there's a lot of parents who get into the, the fields that we're in because they have a child and they see the lack of other people in the field. And so they shift their own professional practice into being, whether it's attorneys or interventionists or special education teachers. But, um, Like, like you, I don't have a child myself with special needs, but seeing how important this is and being able to advocate for others has really motivated me to be able to make real change. So welcome to the club. Um, (laughs) and so I know, I know that there's a big, huge case that you were, um, on the legal team for, they went all the way to the Supreme court. I wonder when you were in the Supreme court, did you look back and like that reflection of, wow, how did I get here? Like, (laughs) it must've been really awesome. Like literally um, the biggest court in the land.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, it really was surreal. Right. Um, And especially here, the one, um, you know, Less than 1% of, of cases that are, that, like in the U.S. Supreme Court, right, there's no, they take it on what's called a petition for re-certiary. You're basically asking the U.S. Supreme Court um, to hear your case, um, and that involves, you know, every type of case you can imagine, criminal law, trademark, um, you know, you name it, and everybody across the country is, you know, petitioning the, the Supreme Court to, to hear their case. And really the Supreme Court is taking a case, um, you know, usually to uh, remedy or fix a, a split in the circuit courts, you know, to harmonize say federal law or the constitution and and they're, you know, very selective as to the, the cases they, they take. And it's, I think it's less than 1% of, of cases that they're asked to hear that they actually take you know 75 or so out of maybe 8,000 that are petitioned. Wow. So, anyway, long way of saying that that, um, you know, here you know, taking this case, uh, this Andrew F versus Douglas County School District case, which we you know had been you know in the courts for I don't know five six years or something like that, um, right. And finally, the, the Supreme Court takes it and it takes, you know, and the issue in that case was really at the heart of um, what the IDEA stands for, a free appropriate public education and resolving what is, what is an appropriate education, what's a free appropriate education that's, that's sort of guaranteed by this IDEA. And here the Supreme Court was going to decide that finally after 35 plus years of, of it being, you know, in flux they were going to establish a standard uh, for that. And it was, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty incredible just to be there. And, you know, um, yeah.
1: And then to find out that it's a unanimous decision in your favor, right? how often has that happened? (laughs) I mean, truly, I, I didn't look it up, but it's a, it's a very rare thing. I mean, it must've been just, Unbelievable to have that decision come back to you in your favor and it to be unanimous.
2: Yeah, it was, I mean, the timing of it was, was pretty incredible too. Just sort of a a backstory on that, that, um, so we're in the 10th circuit, right? The United States is divided up into, um, you know, dozen circuits, federal circuit courts of appeals. Right. And so, you know, in the 10th circuit controls Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, Kansas, Um, Wyoming and Oklahoma um, and it establishes the federal law for that circuit and so there's other circuits that that handle um, those states' cases and I had a case back in the early 2000s, it was Thompson School District versus Luke P, another child with autism and that went all the way up to the 10th Circuit and we had prevailed at every level up until the 10th Circuit, the school district kept appealing and the issue actually in that case was Pretty much the same issue in the Andrew F. The Tenth Circuit was asking, "All right, you know, we haven't decided this issue in our circuit. Um, what, what what's the free appropriate public education? What does that mean?" Um, and I felt, you know, confident that that we were going to prevail because we'd already prevailed what, on three appeals already. Um, but the Tenth Circuit reversed and. It said that and, and Judge, well now Justice Neil Gorsuch authored the opinion that said that a, a free appropriate public education is means merely more than de minimis progress, you know, some progress on some goal that's included in the child's IEP. And I was, hmm. you know, I was devastated by it because I knew, I mean, I don't know, if you think of a bar, you know, you just know reading that language merely more than de minimis, merely more than nothing. The bar for a school district to satisfy its its obligation to provide a fate is merely more than nothing. Right. And so, um, so I was, I was crushed and was like, all right, what parent then can prevail a certain, you know, uh, advocate for their child's rights to a fate after that. And, you know, we continue to fight and we actually filed a petition for a certiorari in that case. And, the court didn't take it.
1: Hmm.
2: And so this, you know, end ref case comes along. And of course, you know, at the lower stages, due process hearing in front of an administrative law judge, district court, 10th circuit, you know, they're all applying this merely more than de minimis standard. And they're saying, yeah, his behavior is deteriorating. And yes, you know, the goals and objectives are just regurgitated year after year. But, you know, he can count more coins at the end of the year than he could at the beginning that's some progress uh, that's all okay. the standard you know There, so school district wins um you know parents lose and so anyway the timing of this is what i was getting at is that yeah you know by now so this is the summer of say 2016 right during the presidential election and it's very important so we had filed our petition for the certiorari and the supreme court at that time asked for the views of the, the solicitor general basically saying hey look Department of Justice, Department of Education, Department of, you know, Defense. There's actually schools on, on bases. Uh, Department mm-hmm. of Interior. There's schools on on uh, reservations. You know, basically the Solicitor General, the attorney for the administration, saying, "This is your statute, IDEA. Um, you tell us. Um, one is this an important." You know, should we? Is there a split in authorities? Should we take this case? And is this the facts of this case? Is it conducive to um, resolving this this issue? And you know, at the time is obviously the Obama administration, and they um, wrote a very strong, powerful uh, brief in our favor, saying um, yes, you should take this case. Yes, the facts of this case um, are conducive to resolving this issue, and more importantly here's the outcome you know this merely more than de minimis standard does not further the purpose of the IDEA and the IDEA requires a you know much uh, higher robust standard it's like great um you know and and so anyway the, the petition for for rita is granted in say September of 2016 and so it was like we're in that's great um then you have this briefing schedule that follows and then oral arguments and then the decision usually comes out say in the spring. So election happens, obviously Donald Trump gets elected November, you know, whatever 6th and immediately he or, you know, very short period of time, he sends out his shortlist for uh, associate justices to replace Antonin Scalia, Justice Scalia, who had died in February. And all of a sudden, you know, so, so Justice Gorsuch is on that short list also, um, or Judge Timkovich, who drafted, who authored the end ref decision of the 10th Circuit. And so we were, I was, you know, just very nervous that if, you know, Judge Gorsuch comes right. on the bench and he didn't author this decision, so he's not going to be conflicted off. You know, he can, and it's his standard that's under attack here, right? right. He came up with this, um, you know, all right, you know, we're doomed type thing. And so, uh, you know, um, so anyway, that's playing out. And oral argument happens, um, Justice, or Judge Gorsuch is um, selected as, as uh, Donald Trump's uh, appointment or nominee for the, for the U.S. Supreme Court, and um the decision comes out March 22nd, 2017. And I'm driving to work and, you know, I started getting these texts that, you know, the decision has come out. Oh boy. Racing to work, (laughs)
1: um,
2: you know, to look at the decision. And so I, you know, get on my computer like this. I'm trying to open up my browser and look at it. And all of a sudden I started getting these other texts, you know, you got to get on C-SPAN. Right. (laughs) Um, What's going on? Because it turns out that, that, Judge Gorsuch was right in the middle of his confirmation hearing to be associate justice, and somebody had walked this Andrew F. decision over to his Senate confirmation hearing. And as soon as I pull up, say, C-span, uh, Senator Dick Durbin from Illinois was just drilling him, Judge Gorsuch, on the standard. You know, why did you uh, add this word "merely" um, to mm. "de minimis"? You know, why did you, you know? Uh, established such a low bar for students with children with disabilities here the supreme court soundly is rejecting here the standard you established and it's an eight decision or seven or you know decision you know authored by chief justice roberts and anyway for me say personally it was you know not only this rejection of this this horrible defeat that i had years earlier but also this establishment of this markedly more demanding standard for a free appropriate public education. It was, you know, all in one day <laughs> it really is pretty yeah. Terrible.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and the way that this impacts families who have a kiddo in the school district receiving services is now there's a expectation of actually increasing in your progress in your education. And how how does that Look different now compared to before the decision was made.
2: So before, you know, under this, merely more than de minimis standard. Yeah, you know, really, it's it's not only it's a tool, obviously, for IEP teams to to use as a framework to determine, all right, how do we how do we develop this IEP? Um, but it's also it's a it's sort of this court-based standard, right? To for a, a judge really to to determine a school district's compliance with this IDEA mandate, you know, a standard for a court or a judge really to say, is the school district in compliance or out of compliance with the IDEA? Does this Is this reasonably calculated to uh, provide this child a, a faith? And so, and, and judges, obviously, you know, many of them, you know, don't have kids or maybe don't have children with disabilities. They certainly aren't you know, in the business of of education and figuring out educational uh, issues or whatever. So prior to this standard, you know, we have this merely more than de minimis standard, really is some progress on some goal. And so, you know, school districts would, you know, take that literally and say, here, judge, like in just like in the Andrew F. case, right? Here, here are the goals and objectives. Yes, they've been... You know they're basically the same over the last three or four years um, and in that case I argued there is no evidence of progress there's no data there's no there are no progress reports here there's no there's no uh, I don't know, hand-drawn turkey for Thanksgiving or whatever there's nothing to show
1: yeah. yeah
2: what progress this child has made on his IEP goals let alone just in general But the school district would say you know what the goals the way the goals are drafted um the, the verbiage changes the baseline changes some from from year to year and that's evidence of at least some progress and the administrative law judge picked up on that and said yeah you know it's yes these goals are basically the same but you know last two years ago he was um, counting coins to a dollar now the goal is uh counting coins to five dollars or whatever without any evidence of, you know, does he know what a nickel is? Does he know what a quarter is? Can he do, can he, <laughs> right. can he put together coins that add up to a dollar? It's just that the goal has changed. There's no evidence of progress. But anyway, the, the school district wins, right? And that, and that just, you know, demonstrates how low the bar was. And, and right. it's, but it's in the Andrew F. decision that says, this isn't an education at all. This is just waiting for the child to drop out. Um, Yep. So anyway, with this new standard, it, it even though it's a standard, right, it's not a rubric, it's not, you don't put in this data and it comes out with an answer as to whether it provides FAPE or not. But it does say, um, you know, you have to look at the, you know, it has to be progress, uh, you know, appropriate in light of the child's circumstances. And it's, it's looking at the whole child and the child's potential, right? So mm-hmm. if the child has the potential to... Pass from grade to grade and master, you know, uh, core curriculum standards. That is, you know, that is the bar, right? And so, if the child has learning disabilities or whatever, that the school districts is required to um, address those barriers to enable that child to um, graduate and or you know go from grade to grade and actually master those content standards, um, just like every other child. Uh, and so behavior does become an issue, you know, functioning in school becomes an issue. Socialization becomes an issue. You're looking at education with a capital E, you know, as opposed to narrowly looking at, you know, some data point for some goal. It's like, well, right. I guess he may be making progress on this goal, but how is he, how is he functioning? How is he um, doing it in science, say, or? Right.
1: And and some of those pre-learning skills, like being able to attend or m- hold right. it together for a whole day in, in school, the schools have to address those things. They can't just say, "But that's behavior. We only have to focus on the academics."
2: Which I think you know, and, and you know, schools districts are slowly uh, changing course, and, and I think the Sandra F decision. Um, it's a slow process right i mean school districts are are like tankers (laughs) it takes a long time to get them to get them to shift but for a long time and and i still come up against this that school personnel school districts, are say we're in the business of academics that is education reading, reading and arithmetic art if we can afford it you know whatever and so if you have behavior challenges, you have mental health challenges, whatever. Yes, we have a you know we have a counselor or social worker that, um, yeah, you know, we can give you access to. But if you're not making progress, or you're like you said, if you're not able to attend, um, or you're disruptive or whatever, that's not our problem. We're going to remove you, or we're going to do you know do something else. Right. But we're not in the business of of ensuring progress on attention skills or, or specifically behavior behavior is, is a huge is a huge issue right and it's not just children with with say autism um, but behavior and it goes to being able to attend being able to be ready uh, and receptive to to learning and if if um I don't know, you know, I think the school—it's—it's it's challenging, as you know. That's, thats what your business is—is—is is, yeah. is getting them to—to to be able to um, function conducibly, and and uh, a lot of times the school districts do not have the wherewithal or the just the desire to do that. And the easiest thing for them to do is to to remove the child from the classroom, put them in a self-contained classroom, put them in a. You know, isolate them, you know? Yeah. them. You know, yeah. call the call the police, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I have a number of cases right now just on that, it's, it's like, all right, child with autism, um, you know, uh, pokes another kid in the arm or whatever and scratches them, whatever, we're calling the SRO and, and having them deal with it as opposed to, all right, what's do we have a behavior plan in place? Do we know what's triggering this? You know, what are our de-escalation strategies? And, you know, we can deal with, this is not a criminal, (laughs) this is not a criminal situation. Um, We're, you know, we need to be able to deal with this. And if we don't have a behavior intervention plan in place, maybe we need, because of this and other, you know, um, behavior challenges the child might have displayed, we need to do a functional behavioral assessment. And we need to consider a, a behavior intervention plan. Yeah, incarceration or handcuffing or uh, removal is more often than not um, not the solution.
1: Right. Yeah, and it probably isn't going to give that uh, feeling of trust when the kiddo comes back. Yeah. Um. You know, it's probably setting them up for less motivation and less interest in being in that environment. Yeah. Um. It's, yeah. I I've heard of even as young as seven years old where. Um, a kiddo threw a chair across the room because he was sick of whatever mandate that the teacher had for the classroom. And he was expelled, which he now is a home learner, um, not by choice. And when there's a family who has something that they feel is wrong, but they don't know what to do about it, And they don't, they aren't an attorney themselves and maybe they're even a foster parent and not even a biological, but some other caregiver. It's really hard for families to hear from a professional who has a degree and experience with other kids and works for a very, you know, big system like a school district to know what to do. Like you just know something's wrong. That doesn't mean um, the school is the one at fault in your head, you know, like they understand that their child is difficult, and they've had the chair thrown at them too. They right. know it's hard. They know that restraint is possibly a solution, and it. But,
2: no, I mean, that's a very good point. And two, you know, yeah, you, know, you just think about the unimaginable amount of trust a parent has to have in you know the school system in the school itself right I mean yeah. kindergarten the gardener whatever that you're you're you know literally either putting your child on the bus or you're dropping them off at school and they go in those doors and those doors close um you have no control as to, to what's going on in there and you know more often than not I mean you know, principals can control access and whatever. And a lot of parents, certainly a lot of parents of children with disabilities, um, they are not welcome in the school. They're not allowed to just go in and bring brownies and, and go down the end of the hall and and check on their kids or whatever. They got to check in at the front desk. Somebody's going to come out if they're allowed to go back to the to the classroom. They're usually escorted. Anyway, a long way of saying that it's a huge amount of trust. I think back, you know, we have two boys they are in their twenties now, but you know, you think back and um, right. You're just dropping them off and you're trusting that those teachers are going to be kind and compassionate. You know, sometimes forget about learning. (laughs) You just don't want them to come back harmed. Uh, And, and so, um, so yeah, anyway, when something like that happens, you know, where they're uh, handcuffed or restrained or, isolated or whatever, that is an incredible breach of that trust, right? And not only is the child traumatized and all right, I'm not going back there, you know, but also the parents are like, I can't trust you anymore. You know, you you say that you're going to get training or we're not going to do that anymore. or Now we have a plan in place or whatever, but a lot of times that trust has been broken. And then, then what do you do? You know, um, especially when that's, sometimes the only place for a child to
1: right there might not be a second school yeah Mm -hmm. there might not be a second option the parents may not have the funds to be able to afford a private institution or i mean the the
2: switch schools you know so it's, it's move very hard right yeah
1: yeah i remember when there was um there was some families who moved out of state and it was like, we're going to move to, because they've heard that special education is, is much better in fill in the blank state compared to where they're moving from. And the idea that you could just pick up and move so that your kiddo has a different teacher is not able to be met by most families. Right. Right. And that's like, if you have more than one kiddo, like if one kid is stable in their environment and the sibling is needing something different. Just the logistics of having those difficulties. Yeah, and and when it comes to behavior, if, like, you know, if the parents also agree, yeah, my kid is tough. Um, it's easy to understand why the teacher may have used a restraint or seclusion or required um, ADHD meds before they can come back or whatever the You can understand it, even if you know it's kind of wrong, right? Like, you know, it's not right, but.
2: um. What I run into a lot and and I'm sure many of your clients, they can, you know, relate to this is is say, and speaking, you know, primarily about behavior and, you know, challenging behaviors that you have, you know, a home program that is addressing that behavior, say through ABA or whatever. And, um, and you see progress with your child, you know, that this sort of radical change of, of sort of progress behavior. And, and uh, you know, what's after a while, you sort of know what works, you know, obviously a lot of it is trial and error, but after a while, this is working. Um, And, you know, just given some of the traits of, you know, Children with behavior challenges that you know consistency and structure is is imperative, right? Yeah. And so you want the parent wants to go to the school to the teachers and say, you know, we need to be on the same page. We need to collaborate. Yes, my child has challenging behaviors, but we have, you know, not a cure, but we have um, we have a program in place, strategies in place, um, services in place that. That work. Let us share that with you. Let us, you know, sort of co-train each other, so such that you're using the same strategies at school, the same right. interventions at school that we're using at home. And um, again, you know, from my vantage point as an attorney, I just see what's broken. So I'm not saying that schools right. don't collaborate. But what I see is, you know, this 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 incredible sort of unexplained resistance to um, to allow those strategies, those things that work at home to be put in place at school. It's sort of this attitude of, we're the professionals. This is why we went, you know, this is why we got our degree, um, special education, or uh, this is why I got my master. This is what I do for a living. We're the education professionals. That's great that that happens at home. That's great that, you know, mom, dad, you, you know, you have these tips and stuff, but, drop them off let us do our thing and um you know
1: And we'll give them back
2: we'll give them back and and it's to me it's it's baffling
1: well we do need to go to break so let's pick up right there as soon as we get back thank you What's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network
0: by keeping up with us on Twitter? You can find us at Voice America TRN. Ask the experts. Call toll free right now 1 866 472 5787. And ask our All Star team to answer your questions. That's 1 866 472 5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Every Saturday morning, listen for the Superstar Sports Talk Block on Voice America Variety. We've got the best programs if you want to talk football, hunting, outdoors, racing, and more. The weekends belong to sports,
2: and you'll find it every Saturday beginning at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time. You'll hear from the players, owners, experts, and fans from around the world. It's the
0: Saturday Superstar Sports Talk Block. Wow, that's a mouthful. And it's only
2: on the Voice America Variety.
0: the bottom line in business talk. You're listening to More Than Special with Jermaine Souffert. To connect with Jermaine, or if you have a question or comment about the show, send your email to jermaine at morethanspecial.org That's G-E-R-M-A-I-N-E at morethanspecial.org Now, Back to the show.
1: Yes, and we're back with Jack Robinson, and um, we're talking about special education in a variety of contexts. Um, I wanted to back up really quickly and, and talk about uh, what an actual IEP is. What does it stand for? Um, what is its importance? I hear about these IEP meetings. Do families have to go to IEP meetings? What if a kid has one and Parents disagree. What is that? So
2: yeah, that, that's a, a great question because an IEP is an individualized educational program, and it's um, sort of unique to the IDEA. It's you know, if you're eligible, um, you, you're you know determined to be eligible under these thirteen categories. One of thirteen categories, you're eligible for an IDEA or an IEP, and you know, a, an IEP team. Um, and the IDEA has all these regulations as to who has to be a part of that I, IEP team, um, and so there's there's a required uh, number of people from the school district, different areas that need to be a part of that IEP team, and of course the parents, um, and of co- or surrogate parents, foster parents, um, you know, parents of the child, and the child too, if if, if the child wants to be a, a part of that. Uh, that comprises the IEP team. Um, and that IEP team and the parents can bring whoever they want um, to, the I, to that IEP meeting as well. Grandparents, therapist, um, you know, whoever, whoever has, you know, knowledge about the child can be a part of that, that team at the invitation of the parents. And so anyway, the, 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 the job of the IEP team is to develop the IEP and the IEP, as I, like I said, you know, is the centerpiece of the IDEA. It is the, it is what is the doc, it's a written document. Um, and the Colorado Department of Education has, you know, specific forms as to what that document looks like. And we'll go through the the areas of that IEP in a second, because there are, the IDEA does require that that document have specific uh, areas addressed um, in it. And and, but the I, the IEP is what um, uh, is the plan that is uh, delivers the FAPE, the free appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment. And we'll get to that in a second, too. But so it's a collaborative process. Um, at the end of the day, the school district has to decide if there's disagreement during the meeting. At the end of the day, the school district has to decide what is going to be put in place and the parents' sort of rights to dispute that if, they, if there's a disagreement about it follows after that document is is drafted. And so it's not a, you know, when you're making decisions, say, as to whether this child has this disability or that disability or a decision about this goal or this objective in the IEP, um, it's not, you're not really taking a vote. It's not a show of hands as to who agrees, mm-hmm. who disagrees. I mean, that Discussion does take place, but it's it's supposed to be the document is supposed to be developed and agreed to by consensus. That this is in the best interest interest of this child. This is mm-hmm. um, going to this is this is the plan that's going to deliver this free, appropriate public education to this child. And real quickly, you know, the areas of that IEP and it's a critical document, right? Because the first area of that IEP, the first section is. Present levels of academic and functioning performance. And so um, that section, and there's various subsections to that, but that section really needs to describe in very good detail um, the strengths and the challenges and sort of the present levels of performance, not just on, you know, is he at second grade math or first grade, you know. In writing or whatever, but two, you know, school readiness or again behavior or mental health or you know where is this you know socially where is this child such that you could pick it up certainly I could pick it up and read it and say oh I have you know I can see um, not only the strengths of the child but but here's you know where he or she is at um, developmentally Um, because. Those at present levels of performance, and like I said, it's not just academics, but it's academics and functioning, and that's behavior, that's socialization, that's language, that's um, motor skills, getting around the building, um, interpersonal relationships. All of that needs to be contained and described in that in that document, um, and the parents weigh in on that. Um, And so, but the present levels of performance is what drives these goals and objectives, right, is here in this, in in the IEP is mandated that it's reviewed annually, but it's a dynamic document. It it has to be reviewed at least annually, but it can be reviewed every quarter. It can be, you know, something changes, we can sit down and we can change that document. Um, We have to put together the the team again, but we can change that document to, to accurately reflect where that child is now. Um, but anyway, the present levels of performance, you know, drives what goals are we going to be working on for this this child? Um, mm-hmm. and, and there's no limit to the goals. Um, it could be in the areas of math, multiple goals in the area of math, multiple goals in the areas of writing, or behavior goals, or um, self-advocacy goals, independence goals, toileting. You know, any, you know, there's no constraint as to what those goals and objectives are. And and, and again. I, can't remember whether I mentioned it before, but it's, it's looking at education, you know, as broad as it can be, as
1: opposed right. to academics. Um, and, and when it comes to the goals, like, are you trying to get the kid out to be at a level that their neurotypical peers would be at, or are you trying to get them to be at the highest that they can be? How do you know which goals, where, where do you stop with your expectation?
2: Well, right. And that's that that can be a challenge as to what is and that's when we go back to that present levels of performance and, and in that process, through the evaluations that we've done of this child, other sort of topic, but you know, we as a team need to get consensus as to what this child's potential is, right? We know what the yeah. we, we know what the diagnosis would say, or we know what the sort of the barriers are, the disability is, but what is this child's potential? And if it's, like I said, for the vast majority of of children over, I can't remember what the percentage is, but the vast majority of children with IEPs, you know, do have average to above average intellectual ability and can learn at grade level and pass grades just like any neurotypical child can. And that should be the goal, right? If that is, you know... um, if that's the child's potential. Now you have situations where for whatever reason um, we didn't recognize that this child had this learning disability until third or fourth grade and the child is already you know, two, three years behind just say in uh, you know, just say in math say where, you know, testing shows that she should be. So it's like, all right, well, it might not be a realistic goal to raise that child's Sort of grade level or performance level, two grade levels in one year or whatever, right. and so you have to, to. But at the same time, we got to think ahead too and, and and build into that that we want we, we're going to catch this child up, right? right. More uh,
1: more than one year, but maybe not both years. Right. Yeah,
2: or we're going to do a year and a half this year, right? Year and a
1: half next year, and, half, year, next whatever,
2: year. and we're going to ch- catch that child up because that child does have the potential to. To be on grade level, and that becomes our that becomes our goal. Um, and there are experts out there, and you know, school teachers or special education teachers and other people are sort of gifted, if you will, or specialize in here. This, you know, here's how we craft this goal. Here's here's what's realistic or reasonable for this for this child. Um, and so, so you have these goals and objectives, um, and then. The next section really is is in service delivery. You have uh, you have a service delivery statement in the IEP, and you also have a say a service delivery grid, if you will. Say, all right, here's our goals and objectives. We have one in math and language arts. We have one in self determination. We have one in behavior. One in you know speech language. Say, it's like all right. Well, what what types of service services do we need in order to ensure that that child is making um, appropriate progress on those goals and objectives. And so we have a language goal. So we're going to need a speech language therapist. All right. How many minutes a week um, do we need in order to work on that goal to make that progress? Same with special okay. education teacher, all of that. So that, again, is, is an, you know, an area that needs to be um, discussed and agreed upon.
1: And that that isn't. It sounds like what you're saying is the school can't say the speech and language therapist is only available for 30 minutes a week. So that's what we're putting in here. That's exact. It has, it has to be based on the goals. And if the goal requires an hour a week, then that is what is supposed to be in the IEP. Even if the speech language therapist that the school has is only available 30 minutes, how do you handle a school district with less, um, you know, resources and kids with high needs, how do you balance that? It's
2: it's a challenge, and you're exactly right. And one thing that, you know, parents um, and advocates and, you know, uh, people need to be aware of is intentionally or unintentionally, it can start back, That, that very issue that you just talked about can start all the way back in the present levels of performance, downplaying sort of the severity of behavior, downplaying the severity of a language um, uh, challenge, right? Which then, you know, go to the goals and objectives like, ah, eh, let's not make that too um, too difficult or let's not, you know, here we only need one language goal, and, you know, um, knowing that, hey, look, we only have an itinerant speech language therapist. She, right. on her caseload, she can only handle, you know, I don't know, 30 minutes every other week and right. therefore, they're developing this IEP such that when we look at service delivery, right. they're able to do it and they're able to, to at least try to make progress on this goal. And so it really takes um, not only the vigilance of the, the parent, which is crucial, but also that the parent knows that they're entitled to more, right? That, that no, my child's, say, speech language challenge is more complicated, more involved than just trying to pronounce the letter R or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, Therefore, that needs to be recognized in the present levels of performance too. You know, we need to have goals in there such that we're working on those challenges over the year. And then three, 30 minutes a week is not going to, is not going to cut it, you know? Um, And so, you know, and the challenge, the real challenge too is that parents, this is not their expertise, right? They don't know. Yeah. They probably don't know how many hours of, say, direct instruction or two. Right? You know, is it small group or is just the speech language therapist coming into the room? And, um, or is it one on one? Um, and so right. it's, it's again, you go back to, and trouble. I
1: could see how they might feel like, oh, I, wow, how awesome. I got 30 minutes every other week of, this really specialized person to stand in the corner of my kid's classroom and watch and be thankful.
2: So, I mean, the important thing too is, and and I think you asked this question just before is, is that, you know, the IEP is not and cannot be constrained by the resources of the school district, right? Um, That. It is, you know, we don't get to, and that's why, you know, there is a process, right, is that you figure out the present levels of performance, which drives the goals and objectives. And the goals and objectives drive the service hours. Um, and so, you can't say, well, sorry, we don't have a speech-language therapist this year, so we're not going to work on this speech-language right. goal. So, we'll,
1: we'll put some OT goals in there instead <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: So, and then yeah. just real quick, just to finalize that IEP is that after you, the, the service delivery is is established, then the question of this LRE is decided, least restrictive environment. And that means that, you know, you start off from the standpoint of a child being educated in the general education classroom with neurotypical peers. Um, and the team decides, can, can these goals and objectives, these service hours, this, this progress that we wanna make for this child, you know, can we do that in the general education classroom with, with um, supports and services? Do we need an aid in the classroom or whatever? So before you even talk about pulling the child out for anything, um, you're you're wrestling with this, this idea of can the child remain in the general education classroom, lunch, recess, whatever, all day, um, regardless of behavior, regardless of whatever, um, if we put in services and supports, can we keep the child in general education classroom? That's the least restrictive environment. And if the decision is no, this is not going to work, um, then you discuss. All right, pulling the child out, you know, into a resource room or self-contained classroom. Not you don't know, just leap to the, the whole day, but rather, you know, his challenge is in math, and it just doesn't make sense to. Right. I, you know, we can't modify the curriculum sufficient. So he's going to go for this math class period to a resource room with other kids who are about at the same level. And then he goes back for science and whatever. But that's least restrictive environment starts out with general education classroom or neurotypical typical peers. And the more you're removing that child from that sort of baseline of general education, that is a more restrictive environment. And,
1: and so, how do you balance that with um, what the other kids? So, I think of safety for the other kids. If 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 our identified kid that we're talking about in this IEP has behavior issues where they throw the chair, is it does the other children's safety come before his ability to academically learn in that classroom? Yeah. How do you, how do you balance that?
2: Yeah. So again, it's sort of this appropriateness sort of lens that you're looking at this through, and it's not just for the child um, herself, but also um, for the other children. That and it is if, if the child is is disruptive, too disruptive to the other children's learning. That is taken into consideration, and so it's you know you know a child can be behaviorally challenging or disruptive. To themselves such that they're not able to to appropriately attend in a general education classroom. That's one consideration, that the child can be disruptive to others. And that has to be uh, that has to be considered in determining least restrictive environment. But it's not just because, but again, too, on that is that a school district has to, the school staff has to um, to work at it. It's not, well, yes, the child is disruptive, so all right, we're we're removing them you're forgetting the piece about a behavior intervention plan or you're forgetting the piece about um, supports and services that could be put into the general education classroom that would take care of that, right? Right. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, children, children without disabilities have behavior issues, right? right. <laughs> children with, without IEPs, I should say, yeah. you know, have behavior challenges and they're not, they're not removed. I mean, they go to timeout, but they're not, you know, they don't then receive their instruction somewhere else because they're throwing spit wads or they're, you know, right. you know, burping continuously or whatever. That's, right. Right. that's, you know, so anyway.
1: So, um, so if a kiddo is not doing well in the classroom environment and, and is, I'm going to say sent home for their academic instruction potentially and right now with COVID, this is a different story, but, but I, um if a kiddo is having a change of placement to the home setting, or if a kiddo is not able to learn in the classroom environment and sent home, how does that work itself out with, um, you know, a school maybe is just given up. They don't know what to do. And so they just call, come pick up your kid again. He's, whatevering, and the kid gets picked up. How do you continue to meet their educational needs?
2: Yeah, and so, I mean, that's that's a real good question. Uh, You know, a couple things on that is removal from the child's, um, say, educational setting. Let's say just the general education classroom for simplicity. The child is removed from that setting just even – to the principal's office or whatever and and there's a time element to it but if there's a pattern of of that type of removal especially based on behavior even if there's not a suspension or discipline or a formal timeout or whatever certainly the parent is called to come and pick that child up and take him home for half a day that the IDEA mandates that a school district if, if it gets a little complicated but at the end of the day it's if these removals usually, you know, there's a 10-day rule type thing. You know, say 10 days, but it doesn't have to be consecutive days. It doesn't have to be, you know, all day. But there's, um, if the child is being removed frequently for a long period of time, the school district is required to convene what's called a manifestation determination review, right? And say, why is this child being removed from class uh, based upon the behavior? And if it's a manifestation of of the disability of his or her disability, then they cannot remove that child from class. They have to figure out a way to continue to provide the child a free appropriate public education. If they haven't done a functional behavioral assessment plan before, they need to do one now, develop a behavior intervention plan. So again, we have our hands or handle on this behavior such that we are um, doing everything we can, adding more support to keep that child in the educational setting that we've decided is is most conducive to his or her learning.
1: And so if a school district doesn't know how to do one of these things, that doesn't alleviate their responsibility to figure it out, bring somebody in on a consult based something. Right. They right. don't just get to say, oh, well, we've never done that before. So we aren't going to do that in this situation.
2: Right. And another, like on that, um, this is a very important point for for parents to know is that the IDEA does provide this apparent a right to what's called an independent educational evaluation, an IEE. And it flows from like a a school district is required to comprehensively evaluate a child initially before the IEP is ever developed. But then after that, a school district has to evaluate, comprehensively evaluate that child every three years. You know, we're doing annual reviews of the I.E.P. But every three years, called a triennial review, the school district has to reevaluate the child in, in a number of different areas. And if the parent disagrees with that reevaluation, says, hey, look, that's not an accurate picture of my child, um, mm-hmm. either comprehensively or um, just in these areas, the parent has the right to request from the school district what's called an independent educational evaluation, which requires the school district to to pay for a private, independent um, evaluation of the you know so the parent can go out of course the real qualifier is is the is the expert is the evaluator qualified to administer these assessments or whatever which you know there's plenty in Colorado but it is you know it's a very important right that the IDEA provides to say all right the parent is not just beholden to whatever the school district says is the you know, disabling characteristics or performance of their child. They do have a right under certain circumstances to request the school district pay for a second opinion in essence to say, hey, look, we want another we want another look at this, we want another voice. Um,
1: and this. and I know that we only have a minute left. So it sounds like there's a lot more behind all of these nuances and details. What's maybe one or two resources that parents maybe online could look for to have some follow-up info?
2: Yeah, for sure. So there's, you know, there's a PEAK Parent Center, um, Mm P-E-A-K, apps. They can say Google that. It's a, um, uh, you know, it basically is a a resource for parents with children with disabilities as far as advocacy goes and, and really a clearinghouse of of um, you know information to educate parents to to support them and, and connect them with, with advocates specifically on special education matters. Everything that we were just talking about here.
1: That's There's, also,
2: there's also Disability Law Colorado, which is mm. um, which is yeah. Colorado's protection and advocacy agency. It's here in, in Denver, and they have attorneys. They have advocates who represent parents with children with disabilities on a low cost, no cost. Basis depending on um, sort of the financial uh, situation of the parents, but they're a great resource too. Disability Law Colorado. Um, there's also Rocky Mountain Children's Law Center, um, they're another nonprofit, low cost, no cost um, sort of resource, and they have attorneys there too uh, who specialize in special education law, just like I do. Um, and uh, like I said, they're low cost, no cost. Yeah. And, and also another incredible resource I would direct parents to are, that is throughout Colorado is, is are the ARCs, you know, um, most, you know. Uh,
1: there's I app. will be sure to put all of these in a resource f- on our site, but I know that we have to wrap up. So thank you so much, Jack, for your time. We might have to follow up with some more information on another yeah. show. All right. Have a great day.
2: You too. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to more than special. Be sure to tune in again for another program featuring your host, Jermaine Suford next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern time and 8 a.m. Pacific time on the voice America variety channel.
1: Thanks again for being a part of the show.